Hi there, you are listening to the Guitar Speak podcast. My name is Matt Wakeling and this is the show I produce in Sydney, Australia, where I speak to leading guitarists and guitar figures from all around the world. Thank you so much for joining me for episode number 149, the first show of 2021, and I'm speaking to the amazing Australian guitarist Martin Chillier. Martin's had an amazing career playing guitar with the legendary Australian surf band The Atlantics. The wonderfully loved rock pop band Mental As Anything, uh, a slew of solo albums under his own name, uh, many other projects. In fact, must thank our good friend Joe Matera for hooking me up with Martin, for getting me in touch, and uh, we talk about a collaboration those guys did as well. Martin also happens to have probably the most extraordinary collection of vintage guitars in Australia and we really get into the weeds on that. It's a lot of fun talking about that collection including a 54 Strat amongst other almost priceless museum pieces. Now today's episode is brought to you by Fretboard Biology, a fantastic online guitar course put together by Joe Elliott, another good friend of our podcast here. Now, Joe was the head of guitar at the uh, amazing GIT, Guitar Institute of Technology in LA, and also the McNally Smith Music School in recent times. And he's poured all that knowledge into the fretboard biology course. Let's hear some words from Joe now. You're tired of wading through hundreds of random guitar videos and just want to become a better player. Fretboard biology is your answer. Fretboard biology is a self-paced college level program that'll give you the right instruction, in the right amounts and in the right order. You'll learn the same information I taught to thousands of other guitar players over 30 years of teaching in top music colleges. If you want to make real progress with your guitar playing, then sign up for a free seven-day trial at fretboardbiology.com. Now, if you've been following the show for a while, you'll know that I was one of the beta testers for Fretboard Biology, and I can recommend it as a fantastically paced and organized guitar course. There'll be links in our show notes for you to check that out. Martin Chilia, welcome to the Guitar Speak podcast. Thanks, Matt. Good to be here. Thanks for coming. I'm very excited to be speaking with you. I've, I've been a fan for a long time, um, so there's so much stuff I want to ask you. Um, a, a real immediate thing I've noticed you've been up to is working with uh, a friend of the podcast, Joe Matera, on on an instrumental track. How, how did that come about? That's, that's good. Well, we, did, we actually did two songs. We released two singles on one day. Um, uh, yeah, Joe approached me a couple of times about some different things. First of all, we were going to do a couple of gigs together. Then with the lockdown and the COVID situation, it ended up being just a, little, a recording project. So we, we did one song that came out well, and we did a second one, and uh, we sort of co-wrote and um, and played on them. And uh, yeah, people people are liking it. It's a couple of good up vibe songs. Yeah, one's called yeah, one's called Sunday Island. The other one's called uh, when I think of it, St Kilda Bay. Yes, that's that's the track I've heard. Yeah, yeah, it's a lot of fun. Yeah, how, how does it work? Uh, Joe's obviously in in Melbourne, um, and you're up here in Sydney. How how does the uh, over the net composition process yeah, well, work? The wonders of technology. Basically, we were just emailing files back and forward. And I have a studio in Sydney, so I went to the studio and put the track down, and got uh, we had Jacob Cook play drums on it. Yeah, wonderful. And, uh, 
yeah, it came out, yeah, live drums and just made it all different. You know, just it just sounds sounds great. So Jacob came in and did that, and then we uh, mixed it and uh, we're done. It was, it was pretty simple, and Jacob would just uh, send his parts across via uh, email. Excellent, excellent. Oh, great result. Well done. Yeah, it came out well. I mean, it was it was a pretty efficient way of doing it, really. Wonderful, wonderful. So that that new um, so that release with Joe, I guess that's the first uh, recording release you've had since your your album Shadow Man from from twenty nineteen. Yeah, I think it is actually. That's the first yeah, the first new recording I've done. Very I've been re- been recording and back you know cataloging songs, just having a back catalogue, but I haven't released anything. Okay, that's yeah. all. Now, Shadow Man, that was your, I believe, your seventh solo album. And the, um, before we talk about the album itself, the, the title or the, the, the title of the album, Shadow Man, seems to be uh, a bit of an obvious reference to one of your heroes, Hank Marvin. Yeah, it was actually the record company's idea. David Benier, who runs Bombora, Bombora label out of Adelaide, it's actually his idea. Okay, okay. And I thought, oh, great, yeah, why? So, it's so obvious <laughs> I didn't see it. So he suggested it and we went with it. And, uh, and yeah, so we, we just put a, I think it's 16 tracks on there that, that go together to make up that album. Uh, half were actually covers and half were original songs. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't do that many covers, but sometimes I just you know like to play songs that I like and sure. do versions of them. Sure. So we did that album and uh, it came out. Yeah, that's still ticking over, still doing well. Wonderful. Yeah, it is a, it is a great mix of your your own tunes and covers, as as you say. Tell me about... Your your relationship with Hank because you you grew up in England where obviously the shadows were were massive for the first I think was it the first ten years of your life? Yeah, well in England, yeah, I, I think we, we immigrated to Australia in nineteen sixty eight, so I was just turned nine then. Okay. In yeah. England, in England, uh, the shadows, well, particularly Hank Marvin, he he was probably as famous as the Queen of England at the wow. time in England. Wow. He was incredibly, you know, a, a character as well as a musician, he was just so, you know, well-known. He probably couldn't walk down the street, I would imagine. Anyway, my dad was a, a huge fan of The Shadows, and uh, that's how I got to hear it. And we came to Australia in person, and I got a guitar and just tried trying to pick out the tunes. And it went from there. Um, I had good good family support, so that really helped. And, uh, yeah, and, and, and now with Hank, I've met Hank a number of times now, and... Um, Actually, last time was in Perth. Uh, Is in that where he's 20... living these days? Yeah, he's been there since 1987. Wow, there you go. Yeah, he moved to Perth. It was just a better life for his kids and a better place to bring up children and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so he kept him to like. And, and also, you can be on a plane from Perth to London just, you know, over overnight, basically. Right, right. Still, still 20-hour flight. But it's, uh, <laughs> you know, you can, you can be there the next day sort of thing. So, sure. Um, so it was still quite accessible to get to England. Yeah. Well, you know, but uh, yeah, so so Hank actually came to a gig I was playing at in Perth last year. And uh, that was it. That was a bit of a surprise to, you know, to walk on stage and Hank, Hank Marvin sitting in front of you, like literally, <laughs> literally, you know, less than 10 feet away. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, it was good. But, but I had met him a number of times before. So that was, that was sort of fine. And yeah. And then, um, yeah, we had a, chat for about an hour after the show and he's always good to talk to always i always learn something yeah you know? wonderful and he's he's found a new lease in his playing hasn't he? he's doing the uh the whole gypsy gypsy jazz kind of thing yes he definitely is and he's doing it really well he's got a great angle on it um 
and he plays the stuff. He just plays anything well. Whenever Hank plays the guitar or a melody, it just, it just sounds good. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he's got the touch and the sound and the, the sensibility to you know put a good melody across. Yeah, so he's that's basically his hobby now. He calls it his hobby. Uh huh. That's a pretty good hobby. <laughs> yeah, but he still does it professionally. If you know yeah, what I mean. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Mm. So, so I've learned a lot just talking to him about you know arrangements and oh, we chatted about so much stuff and. Uh, yeah, always something to learn. That's so cool. So when you were learning, when you when you picked up the guitar in Perth as a as a young fella, um, I think I've read you you were just working things out by ear. What what kind of pieces were were the initial inspirations? Well, at the time, the big songs were or the big bands. You had the Shadows, which was the first one, the Beatles, mm-hmm. uh, Stones, a little bit. Uh, but there's bands like Creedence Clearwater Revival came out. And so, you know, I'd sat, sit down and try and work out their songs and, and just, yeah, you know, just strumming on, getting chords and a few melody lines. And bit by bit, uh, you'd pick up stuff. And then I had a friend who had a, a piano in their house. And then the piano stool, you lifted the lid up, there was music books. So I used to sit there and try and figure out the notes and try and play the melodies in these music books just to figure it out, you know, old show tunes and stuff. Uh-huh, uh-huh. You know, I'll do a bar here, a bar there, but you pick up stuff by doing that and th- that's kind of how I did it and what one day I realized that I could actually work out the chords to songs by you know on the radio or on records by playing along and I pick out the, I eventually get the chords after two or three times so once I figured that out I went through every record in the house and tried to play along with it <laughs> that's you know? so good that's so good yeah and you go to pick up some things and some things are wrong probably and but you just keep, just keep doing it and it's, it's part of the fun yeah, definitely. Isn't that an amazing thing for your confidence as well when you realise, hang on, I can work out this song I've loved for... Yeah. You know, and then sometimes you know. sometimes you do it wrong. And, you know, a couple of years later, you go, oh, I see now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, or you think you've got it wrong, but you've got it right. That's even worse. Um, <laughs> you know, it's, yeah, but you used to trial and error, and, you know, and then I basically learned to play. Um, by playing in bands because we at school we had a few friends we used to play together and and stuff and I basically just learned by playing actually playing with other musicians that's how I learned okay on the stage and getting it done mm. yeah like you go home and it's very gradual uh, I'm not a good practicer I don't sit at home and play guitar all day or anything I'm not really good at that but you know if I've got to write for an album or something I'll write the songs and play on them yep sure. um, that that gives me a purpose. But the old days, I used to just, you know, have, I've got band rehearsal tomorrow, okay, we'll learn this song. So I just go and learn that song, then I turn up the rehearsal and play it and, and try and get it better. But I basically, and I also grew up with good drummers too, which really helped. Okay, yeah. I, did, I didn't realise it at the time, but I was fortunate enough to play with good drummers. Yeah, so, that's, um, such a, that's a deal maker or breaker in the band, isn't mm, it? it? It is. You, you, yeah, if your drummer's not so good, you sort of, the band just doesn't have the impact. Yeah. But so I was quite lucky to play with good drum. I didn't say, I didn't realise until later in life, that, oh, yeah, I was quite fortunate there. Yeah, very cool. When mm. when I'm listening to Shadow Man, um, yeah, obviously there's, the like you said, the covers and, and the originals. How do you know where to draw the line between um, authentically, I, I guess talking about the covers to start with, um, yes. authentically producing a classic piece of music, and then where to to push the edges of things. For example, um, Apache sounds like a fairly mm-hmm. um, 
uh, honourable version of of Hank's version is you know you want to reflect all the nuances, but yes. you get to Eleanor Rigby, and you take um, a lot of liberties. Um, at the same time, uh, what I really dug about Eleanor Rigby is that you've got this epic intro. It's a whole new passage you've added, and then yeah. I'm hearing echoes of the the string quartet arrangement that you've rearranged for guitars elsewhere in the song, and obviously, I guess the vocal melody as well. So. Um, I guess I'm, I'm, this is a very long question. It's probably a simple question, though. Mm-hmm. So in your arranging, how do you know where to um, yeah, draw that line? Okay, what I do is, say with Apache, because that's a simple one to start with, yep. I, learned the, I learned basically the original version. I learned the song properly. I learned the chords, the melody, the harmony. I learned the song. Once I've learned the song, uh, with Apache, again, I just did a basic what I call an Australian pub rock version. Uh-huh. Because uh, so growing up here, people play different in Australia in the 70s and 80s and probably into the 90s. People play different. Bands play different to what they do to anywhere else in the world. Yeah. How do, you, I think, how do you measure that? Well, it's just when you play to an Australian audience, you, you have like, you know, remember the beer bars they ha- you have here? Yes. Uh, and those places, you have to, you have to, you know, you can't have, uh, you can't be too subtle. You've got to play quite hard and you've yeah, got to project yeah. and you've got to reach the audience, you've got to keep the audience interested. Mm-hmm. Um, and it doesn't happen all over the world quite like that. You might have smaller clubs or like in New York or whatever, but in Australia, I think you have to play like that. All those bands like ACDC, Angels, Rose Tattoo, all those bands come out of that and that's why they play like they do. Because um, you have to play to that audience. And I think with what I do, every song I take, especially if I do a cover, I'll try and add that to it. Okay. I take yeah. the attitude as if I was playing, you know, uh, one of the happening gigs in the 80s or something. Mm-hmm. It's kind of what it is. I didn't realise at the time when I was doing it, but looking back, that seems to be what it reflects. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So it's, I, think it's a, I think it's an Australian thing. Yeah, that's cool. That's very cool. That's a good, a good edge to put on things. Um, we'll talk <laughs> about the Atlantics shortly, um, and uh, that'll be an interesting uh, angle as, as well. The... Um, mm-hmm. What else? So Eleanor Rigby. So you you were like I said, you were drawing on some of the string lines. Um, what, what what's something then? What's an approach you would give to a tune like that when you really want to uh, put your own stamp on it a little harder? Well, you, you take a melody, saying you learn the melody first, then you work out what what the song has in it, uh, harmony harmony wise. But I also I took a version of that version of something else. I'm not sure if you aware of a band called Zoot that was around 1970. I know the name. I didn't know they ever covered Eleanor Rigby, though. Wow. Yeah, I taught the cool progression of that, and then oh, I wrote a melody okay. over it. Because I always thought, when I grew up, I always thought that song wasn't finished, their version. I thought, that's not finished. I'm going to finish it. <laughs> so <laughs> that's how that started off as a fun project. And a couple of my, my mates came around. We you know, played drums and bass on it, and, um, and that's what we ended up with. But it's, um, it, it, yeah, it's got tempo changes, um, and, and that sort of stuff in there, which no one does anymore in music. It's always the same tempo, start to finish. Yeah, yeah. that version's got tempo changes. It's got maybe three or four different tempo changes in it, which is just done naturally when you play the song. We just played it like live. So, um, but that—that's where I got the idea for the chord progression. Okay, so awesome. That's that's where. I, yeah, so I I borrowed that from my youth. One of the first things I heard on the TV was the Zoot playing and the Rigby, and that's where I got that from. Nice and created a, and, and just created a melio over it and took the vocal parts onto guitar. Yep, wonderful, wonderful. Mm. You've um, you've 
You've appeared in two very much loved Australian bands, the Atlantics and Mental as Anything, as, as a key member of both of those bands. Um, yes. Let's start chronologically. The Atlantics, how, how did that gig come about for you? Well, with the Atlantics, that happened in the mid to late 90s. Mm-hmm. I was playing in bands. I, I had a residency at the Marble Bar at the Hilton Hotel. Oh, in yeah, Sydney. yeah. We did a couple of nights, uh, Tuesday, Wednesday nights, I think, for a while. Great. And at the time, dance music, techno, techno music was really big. Guitar was a bit uncool. And I just thought, why well, music's going? There's nothing, no records I want to buy. There's nothing coming out that I want to hear. So I thought, I'm just going to start. I'm basically going to make my own album for my own enjoyment. So just, just for, as a hobby, I started writing these songs. Yep. And I had enough songs for an album. I thought, that's just pretty good. That would sound like an album. Like I wanted to do something like the Shadows or the Beatles would have done in their heydays. So anyway, I came across, um, well, actually Bosco, Bosna, the bass player in the Atlantic, the original bass player. I sort of knew him a little bit and then I bumped into him one day and I had a cassette in my pocket of some of the demos I'd been doing. And I said, Bosco, look, um, I'm just recording some songs. I don't know if you'd be into it, but I'd really love for you to come and play bass on my recordings. I've got the studio booked for, you know, a couple of weeks' time. Anyway, here's the cassette. Have a listen if you like it. But, you know, I'd love for you to play. Anyway, about a week later, I get a call from Bosco, and he goes, I don't want to play on your recordings. Well, oh, fair enough. <laughs> he goes, okay, fair enough, you know, that's fine. Thanks for calling. He goes, oh, but would you be interested in joining the Atlantics? <laughs> I go, what? Uh, uh, yeah, he goes, there's only one thing. I go, what's that? He goes, we want to play your songs. Oh, wow. Wow. They love the song so much that it had in the style. Um, and it basically went from there. Fantastic. Next thing I knew, we had an, we had an album done. Um, but we didn't really tell, tell anybody. No one knew we were doing. We, also, we didn't release it. And uh, I think within a month, we were on the ABC, a couple of TV shows, and it just took off from there. We had a pretty good run for a couple of years. Yeah, absolutely. I guess um, for listeners who might not be aware of the Atlantics, they were really the premier surf band in Australia and had a massive worldwide hit with Bombora in 1963. So um, for those guys, especially in the early 60s, to crash into that market that was pretty pretty thick already with superstars is, yeah. is wonderful. And then for them to want to play your tunes must have been quite a thrill. Well, interesting thing about that. Yeah, well, it was. I was a bit surprised. And I thought, well, what's the catch? They said nothing. Oh, and, and we want to make you an equal member. Wow. It, it was just, they were just so good to me. They were just so – they just put me – the thing is, when we started rehearsing and playing, all of a sudden they go into one of the old songs, one of the old, you know, and and um, and I just start playing along with them. Because what I would do after rehearsals, we'd rehearse in the daytime. Mm-hmm. At night, I'd go home and try and – go through their back catalogue Atlantics and okay. try and learn one or two, a song or two just to get up to speed on because they had a huge catalogue. I, yeah, I just yeah. try and try and, you know, go through them and try and learn stuff. Yeah. And they just start playing and they did not know that I, they, they thought I played on the records. Yeah, wow. That's like, amazing. It was, it was one of those sort of things. And also it was like um it's like you know having meeting up with old school pals. It was just like that, but we had never met before. You know, so, yeah, so it really worked out well. Next thing I know, we had a few albums done and we would, you know, did a few tours of Australia. We toured with the Beach Boys and Chris Isaac and a few people like that. The Long Way to the Top tour, we were on that one. That was a great tour. Oh, yeah, um, yeah. Great. I think we did a live studio. It's my first live performance 
with the Atlantics was on national TV on the Studio 22 show. Oh, okay. I remember that show on the ABC. That was a great show. Yeah. We played with, that was my first time I ever played live with a band. Wow. No pressure? Just national <laughs> television show. Just do it. You know, you, <laughs> you can't think about it. You think about it, you're in trouble. <laughs> how many? Yeah. So, how many years were you with them all up? Well, still am. Actually, we still still partners. We still looking at uh, re-releasing. Uh, we've got three songs we found uh, that are recorded, not released. Oh, okay. And we're talking about we're going to re- remix, remaster one of our, uh, the first album that I did with them. Okay, and add right. the bon- add the bonus tracks. So that that'll be for next year. That's our twenty first anniversary of that album. Okay. Wow, that's so, amazing. Yeah. So we're still we're still still basically together. Just that the band doesn't play live anymore. Okay. Yep. Yep. And all the all the guys are still around and still. Yeah. Part of things. Um, I was really talking cool. to talking to Jim, the other guitar player, just yesterday. Jim's still, I think he's feel, feeling his age now. With his, he said his hands getting sore. He's having trouble holding his chords down. Okay. Um, but he's um, yeah, he's still yeah trying to write songs. You know. Wow. Very cool. Yeah. Great to hear. Yeah, really, really loved band. Um, another band we need to talk about are the Mentals now. Um, yes, and we can't mention them without um, speaking of Greedy Smith, who was, you know, so sad to hear of his passing last December. It was quite a shock, but um, yes, of course, for you as a band, a bandmate and a friend, um, yeah, terribly, terribly sorry to hear that news. Yeah, it was I definitely wasn't expected. I can tell you, he wasn't expecting it. I can yeah. tell you that for sure. Okay, um, he was. We were just playing. Well, Greedy and myself that week. When he had his heart attack that week, we, including myself, were going to start recording uh, for a new album, a new original album for Mentals. Yeah. So we were starting to work on that, and this year, just coming up now, we were this October, we were, we had a um, a release scheduled for oh, that okay. album. Wow. So my year was going going to be working on that with Greedy. Yeah. And uh, of course, it didn't eventuate, and um, we didn't even get well, sort of got the first half of the first song down. I think that's as far as we got. Sure. Um, but he certainly wasn't ready to go. He was not ready. He was still, you know, he, he was still carrying on like, you know, like he was thirty years old. Yeah. With right. Enthusiasm. He was still, he was still enthusiastic for the music. He still had the energy and the passion. It was such a shame. Yeah, absolutely. It, it took took us all by surprise, and you know, you realise how many lives he actually affected. Mm. You know, just people, just you know, he he reached so many people. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, wow. What's um, I know like Martin Martin Plaza, the other uh, yes. original member. He he hasn't been touring for a few years due to some health issues as well. Um, so where does, where does that leave the Mentals? Yeah. Is it is it just well, Mentals? I don't. Well, Martin Plaza, oh, he wouldn't have been out with us for a couple of years, maybe yeah. two or three years okay. now. Uh, he's he he can't. He, he did retire. Well, went off the road a couple of times. And then he came out again, but when he came out, his, his health wasn't going to stand up for it. Sure. Basically, when you've got he's got a cancer, cancer, and he's going to take medication and uh, oral chemo. But what happens is when you're touring, you can't keep a schedule. Yeah, it's, sure. You know, your plane runs late, or your you know, the gig runs late, or something changes, and it, it puts your body out of whack. And he just wasn't able to cope with that. It wasn't good for him. So basically, greedy had to send him home. Sure, sure. Um, uh, so, I mean, he still still sings well. He's just just a natural singer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But but yeah, I can't see it. I can't see the band going out as everyone knew it again. I, yeah. don't, I can't see. I can't see 
the band playing. Sure. Tell me, um, tell me some fond memories of playing with those guys because you joined in 2014, I believe. So... Yeah, January. January. Yeah, I just came back from Europe with the Atlantic. We did our last tour of Europe. Mm-hmm. I came back and then I went to America with my own band for a, a while and then I came back and uh, there's a message, mentors are looking for you. And so <laughs> <laughs> basically that's, cool. that's what happened. How great. And, uh, and then I went and, and started with them. I always thought you were such a good fit because if you look at Reg Mombasa's guitar parts, they were always a bit kooky, but there was a real mm. surf, surfy, psychedelic almost edge to them. Um, that I could see you kind of sliding into and making your own. Yeah, for me, it was really natural. I didn't have to try to be anybody else, mm-hmm. you know, to be part of the sound. I think, yeah, Reg is quite quirky and he was quite, you know, he, he was uh, played some really good stuff, interesting stuff. And, it, you know, and his playing had a lot of personality, I think. Yeah. So that was a great, that was a great for me, it was just great. You know, I just walked in and it was like, yeah, this is home. Any particularly memorable gigs or, or sessions with those guys? Oh, there's probably lots, lots of things. Uh, I'm trying to think of some. Uh, I need a, something in context to. Sure. Yeah. I, I think I did. Um, management told me that um, when we stopped the band, when Greedy Pathway, that I, I did 750 shows with the band, wow. according to the manager. Wow. So that's a lot. Yeah. <laughs> that's a lot of travelling. But we, we went to we went to China. We went to New Zealand a couple of times, and mm-hmm. who knows how many times around Australia. Yeah. But I remember I remember one week. I remember doing a gig in Perth on Friday. I did. A, I also play in a band called Dave Warner from the Suburbs. Mm-hmm. I remember Dave? And um, we did. I did a gig in Perth with Dave on Friday. A gig in Sydney with Mentors on Saturday. A gig at the festival in Perth on Sunday. <laughs> and then it was Australia. It was a long weekend, and then the Monday I did Dubbo with Metals. Oh wow! So so it was Perth twice. Yeah, it's Sydney in between. Then Dubbo. I remember that weekend was, like, was <laughs> a bit of a blur. Um, but we did stuff like that. We did mad stuff like that. For our overseas listeners, we should probably point out the distance between Perth and Sydney is pretty much the width of um, the United States. It's a pretty similar exactly. landmass, which. Is crazy. Well, wow. so do, you play Houston, then you play, you know, Seattle, then you play yeah. um, Nash- Nashville, then the next <laughs> night, you, yeah. So it's back and forth. So you spent, I spent most of the time on the plane, I think. Yeah, right. Oh, man. Full <laughs> on, full on. But So that's just one of the weekends. Yeah, that's just one of the things that come to mind as being you know, a bit bizarre. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, yeah, as, as I've, I've said a few times, much loved. And you look at that back catalogue and um, the affection for which that band is held in. Um, yeah, it must have been a very special um, season for you. It was great. Well, the thing about Mentals, they had the songs. They had the good songwriters. They had the songs. Yeah. Mentals were a sing- singles band rather than an album band. Yeah, okay. Yep, I can see that. Um, yeah, and so when you play a gig, it was about which hit to leave out. Wow, <laughs> you know, not not what was not so much what to put in. That's a good problem, out. isn't it? <laughs> yeah, so that that was an interesting scenario, and uh, it, all, it was also pointed out to me by a journalist that Mentals have had more songs in the Australian top forty than any other act, including overseas anyone. Really? Oh wow, mm. wow! They hold the record. Yeah, some of them might only been like you know number thirty six or something in the charts, sure, but they had sure. more single entries in the Australian singles chart than any other act ever. Yeah, yeah. So that's interesting. So um, 
So when you play a gig, it's it's always thing about Australia. You know, you always have the Friday night fights at pubs and yeah. all that sort of stuff. Mentals never had any of that. There was never any aggro at our gigs. Uh-huh. It was always everyone was always in a good mood. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine. Uh, yeah. It's just a very up up band to be in, up vibe band to be in, a good fun, yeah, professional, um, well managed, well organised. It's great. Excellent, excellent. Good to hear. Good to hear. That's really, really cool. Mm. Um, yeah, I actually know Jacob um, Cook, your, your drummer, who, who you mentioned yes. earlier on. Yeah, he's a lovely bloke um, and Isn't fantastic he? Yes. musician. So I was thrilled when he got that gig, um, yeah, a number of years ago now. So that's cool. Yeah, so Jake plays mostly, uh, does a lot of my solo albums now. Oh, okay. Excellent. He's been doing, he did, uh, well, Ellen Rigby, you mentioned before, that's Jacob playing. Oh, cool. That's great. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Now, before we started recording, you mentioned to me about the North Melbourne Surf Club. That's a, a new project. Uh, yes, that's, my, that's the latest one. Tell me about band that. Project. Okay, North Melbourne Surf Club is a band we put together over a couple of days in Melbourne uh, a year or so ago. We went in the studio on a Monday, I think, and and by Wednesday we had the album done. Wow. Um, we just worked between 10 and 5 in the afternoon. It was an easy day. So cool. And it was a bit of an all-star band. Um, there was... Uh, myself playing guitar, Tony Naylor uh, on guitar. Tony's a great, great player. He's been a lot of uh, well-known bands, including uh, Brian Cadd's bootleg family, and he's played on a lot of records. Uh, and then there's uh, Jeff Cox on drums, mm-hmm. was known as Coxie. He was, uh, he's played on a lot of records as well when I think about it. He, he toured with LRB for a while. Okay. Oh, cool. band. And James Gillard on bass. James yeah. was... Um, Mondo Rock. Yes. Probably best known for playing on the Chemistry album. Yeah, great. And, uh, great singer as well. He's very good. Yeah. Uh, and uh, produced by David Briggs. David was the guitar player in Little River Band. Mm-hmm. Wow. Uh, cool. All the, you know, the, the golden lineup. Yeah. And uh, he also wrote a song called Lonesome Loser, which was, uh, I think, their only ever number one hit in America. Oh, that was his tune. Wow. Yeah, he wrote that. And he also produced the first Australian Crawl album. Okay, great. So anyway, so David engineered and produced uh, this album with us. We did it like this, you know, a couple of easy days. And uh, so we're finally getting it out. It comes out the 15th of October. And it's a bit of an all-star band, but all the songs are fresh. And it's all just it just sounds like a band playing live in a room, which is what it was. Great stuff. Is it like originals, cover tunes? All original tunes, all original tunes. I think I wrote, I think I wrote nine of them. Tony Naylor wrote three, and James Gill and myself wrote one. We okay. actually have Joe Camilleri on sax on one song. He oh, came and played awesome, sax man. on That's one of the cool. songs. Yeah, so uh, it's, it's a bit of fun. Very good, and it's a great band name too, the North Melbourne Surf Club. Yeah, it's pretty original, and uh, well, because most of the band was from, you know, from Melbourne, and also we recorded there. We thought that'd be a good name, you know. It's um, and the gag being that there is no North Melbourne right. Beach or Surf Club. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. All right, I hope you're enjoying the interview with Martin Chilia. We'll be back with more. We're just about to do a deep dive into his vintage guitar collection, which is unbelievable stick around for that but in the meantime i need to let you know that today's show is brought to you by fretboard biology get the knowledge without the college the amazing online guitar 
program put together by Joe Elliott, the former head of guitar at the Guitar Institute of Technology in LA and also head of guitar at the McNally Smith School. Up until very recently, Joe's poured all that knowledge into this online course. I was a beta tester for it. I loved it as a music educator myself. I'm very happy to endorse the course. And also players like Greg Koch and Brett Garsett have also given ringing endorsement of the program. So check it out. There's links in our show notes for fretboard biology. All right, back to our interview. Uh, Martin, we need to talk guitars. Um, yes. <laughs> I don't know where to start. Actually, yeah, I think I do. When did you start collecting? Because you've got uh, quite a collection, um, but you seem to to twig with vintage guitars much earlier than, than the rest of us. When did all this start for you? Well, what happened was I, um, I got my first Stratocaster in January 1973. I remember because I saved up for it. I was, I was about 13 or something. Wow. And I, I remember saving up for it, doing paper rounds and all that. Mm-hmm. And I still had that guitar. And I remember the date because the receipt's still in the case. Oh, okay. Now, was it a was it a new guitar or an old one? Yeah, it was brand new. I brand bought it new. brand new. Okay. But I had a friend who knew someone at the warehouse, the CBS warehouse who imported Fenders. We went down there. And we picked out what we thought was the best one. Oh, nice. Down there. Nice. So we had that. I had some guidance earlier on, which was great. And this guitar, I've still got the guitar. It's, it's um, I just basically worn the frets down. That's all. <laughs> but I played that guitar all the time, you know. Yeah. And then um, I discovered that oh, sometimes you need a spare guitar. So I bought a. Um, I just went out to the shops and I bought like whatever it was around 1976 Strat or whatever it was around the time when I bought one, thinking it'd be the same. Uh-huh. And it just didn't sound the same. It just wasn't. I couldn't get it right. So I did that. I did. I bought a couple, two or three things. This is in the uh, you know late seventies. I just couldn't get it right. So I um uh, just sold them, and then I went to England for a year and played over there. And I just only took my the original Strat with me. Yeah. And I sort of got to know people over there and got a bit clued up about the vintage stuff and what were good and what what to look out for, what not to look out for. I had no idea, really. There was no YouTube things. It was no, you couldn't Google anything. You had to learn by experience. So I, um, I bought another seventy-two Strat within a you know couple, a month or two of the one I already had. Okay. And it was yeah, that's pretty good. So I worked out the timelines of when things changed and when the sound changed. Okay, okay. And I worked out, and then went from there. And then when I got back to Perth, a friend of mine had an L series uh, '63 original Fiesta Red Strat, and he then he said, "I'll play this for one." I played that, and I went, "Oh, oh, this is really good." Yeah. <laughs> that's that's a Hank guitar right there. <laughs> yeah, and so, uh, but he still got that guitar. He never wanted to sell it. It's one of the things he's, you know, he'll never sell. So I thought, well, okay, now I've had a taste. My other one, my original one was wearing out. The frets were wearing out. But, well, do I get this one refretted? I'll just go. And so I, that's when they introduced the uh, vintage reissues. Okay, yep. Uh, 82. I, went, I bought one of the first ones of those. I thought, this is pretty good. Um, and I hadn't quite got into, I think I might add a couple of 60s Burns guitars by then or, or things like that. Okay, yep. But, so I bought this reissue because I couldn't find a real one. I couldn't find a real one to buy, so... I say a real one. I mean, like an old early sixties yeah, strap. Gotcha. I couldn't find. So I bought this reissue, which, which is a guitar I use for every mental gig that I just played. 
you know, for all those gigs. I used one I used one guitar for the whole time. Oh, really? In the band. Yeah. In the studio, I had a couple of others, but I used one guitar for every gig, everything we did. And, and which one was that? It's a the, the re, uh, reissue. Um, oh, okay. Uh, 1982 Fender, what they call them, um, 62 reissue. Gotcha, gotcha. So that way. Yeah, wow, and I used that guitar. I've used that on a lot of records. I've used that so much. Um, I just got lucky. I got a good one. And, you know, even though I've got a lot of guitars, I still I just use one guitar for, for that gig because I found a voice and you just stick with it. Gotcha. Yeah, wow. Amazing. Um, I think I never broke a string once in the last song. Okay. Out of all that time. So, you know, I just played the one guitar. Oh, wow. Um, so, so that's how I got into it. And then what happened was I bought this one and I had to buy it on, um, you know, get a loan and buy it, the, the reissue. Mm-hmm. And then... I was in a band in Perth, West Australia, and we were doing quite well, so we were earning some money. So I could, you know, uh, I could afford to. I paid my loan out, and I did that pretty quickly. And then, a, and then another a 1963 Strat came up, a real one. Wow, wow! So I got some money together and I bought it, which I, and I still have that guitar. It's a Candy Apple. Okay. Oh um, man, awesome. and it's great. And I still have that guitar. It's um, it, and I bought that, and then I thought, okay, this is really good. Uh and then I started buying Stratocasters. Um, I must have bought, I don't know how many I had at one stage. I had a lot of old Strats. But the problem there was I had so many, I wasn't enjoying them. Right. Gotcha. Um, so I sold. I, I, then I started discovering Gibsons, old Gibsons, like 50s and early 60s Gibson guitars. And I realized that I'd seen a lot of Stratocasters, like old Strats, especially between 61 and 65, that, that, those sort of years. In Australia, I think, I thought, how many old Gibbons have I seen? Good ones. I thought, hardly any. I've never seen an original Les Paul, like a 50s Les Paul mm-hmm. at that stage. And then I started learning about Gibsons. And basically, I sold a, a lot of the straps to buy the Gibsons. Okay, okay. <laughs> mm. So I've never regretted it. But, but I had too many Stratocasters. And I wasn't you know, able to enjoy them. Now I've got, I'm, I don't know how many I have now. I've still got quite a few, but at least I know what they all are. Yeah. Okay. Um, okay. So how many, um, so you've mentioned your reissue being a really special one. That 63 sounds yeah. like it's a really special yeah. strat. Um, obviously your, your original 73. Did Have you like done any mods or anything on any of those guitars? Uh, the only one that I did, change the pickups on with the reissue because I was playing it in 1985 or 84, somewhere around there. I only had it for a while when we were playing with sweaty pub gigs and basically one of the pickups just corroded out. Okay. Yep. And I had a gig the next night. So I just went and bought a friend of mine said, try these out. And it was a set of EMG pickups. Mm-hmm. Yep. And I said, Oh, I don't know about that. Well, anyway, I put them in. I haven't taken them out since. Wow. Very cool. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> they've, they've got a <clears throat> reputation even, even back in the day, but the tones you would pull with them are super organic or I mean even Ian Moss, he was he was playing EMGs yeah. for a lot of that chisel stuff and it just sounds like yes. a strat, you know, it sounds it, it does and it wonderful. Just, yeah. And I've not taken those pickups out at all. It's um I thought I'd put them in there, get my other pickup rewound, put them back. But I okay. haven't wow. they've never have. These ones work work great. And especially when you're touring you've got to use higher amps as well. Yeah, okay. You know, yep. it can be quieter and they just have a better Fuller sound. Sure. I just found it better. Mm. Yeah. You started mentioning the Gibsons. What What are some of your favourite Gibson guitars in your collection? Um, it's, it's a strange thing, my Gibson collection. 
I've got a couple of 50s Les Paul gold tops. Now, I never even liked gold tops when I was growing up. I never even thought, oh, what are they? They look, they look, probably because I saw the Ibanez ones first. I'm okay. not sure. So I've got a 54 gold top that looks like it's about, you know, six weeks old. Wow. Um, no way. That and like, it sounds fantastic. The one-piece bridge, tailpiece thing. Yep, that's the one. So this one would be the best in the country. I've had it for quite a while, but it's yeah. it, at the time it cost me – I remember mean, it cost me a lot. Uh, it cost me, a, a, I had a, a 1962 Fiesta Red Strat uh, in nine out of 10 condition with original hand ta- hang tags. Oh, man. Uh, and that's what it cost me to get that Les Paul. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> because I just sort of thought, how many of these strats, how many strats have I seen? Oh, I've seen a few old ones. How many Les Pauls have I seen? None, none. Yes, you he jumped on. Uh, so I bought that. Yeah. Um, that's that's a great it's just a great sounding guitar, you know, it just sounds great. And I've got a nineteen fifty eight gold top as well with the pass, the you know, the, uh, the humbucking pickups. That looks like it's about six months old. Wow. Sorry, what year? Fifty like, fifty what? Fifty eight. Fifty eight. Oh man. Yeah. And that's yeah, that's um, when the paths were Yeah. Yeah, that era. And I mean obviously the fifty nines are the like the unicorn of the, the Les Paul world. But man, the fifty eight, how awesome. Well, I had a 59, uh, uh, and the, the, this guitar sounded better, so I kept this one. Okay, okay. I compared, yeah, this one just, just sounded better. Yep. The, uh, it was an early 1960, whatever it was, and it was this one just sounded better. Yeah. So I kept this one. <laughs> so, okay, <laughs> I've got to go with, that's what I, you know, if you're going to go collecting and, and horse trading, it's different, but when I do it, because I like the sound of them. Yeah. I did that, so yeah, and I think probably my best sounding Gibson guitar is the, um, I've got a cherry red 1964 335, a bit like the Clapton one, okay. the same as Eric yeah, Clapton one. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's full Clapton era. Um, that's possibly the best sounding guitar. Okay. Um, it's amazing. Just, yeah. Some some days I play and I go, oh, I don't like it today. But generally, it's, it's it, yeah, it's, it's good. It's, it's one of the best ones you can use of anything. It just sounds great. Fantastic. Man. Yeah. Have you got any, um, are there any guitars you're still looking for? You've, you've, are there any uh, like missing pieces that, that you're still hunting for? Well, there's a couple of things. Yeah, I guess so. But, you know, all in all, I don't know what else I need, you know. Yeah, you're it's, sure. Uh, I, I just sort of think what I need. I, I tend to use the same handful of guitars all the time. I've yeah. got this 1961 uh, Strat, Stratocaster. And I've, I've had that since the 80s. I use that pretty well. That's sort of the first call Strat. If I've got to do a Strat recording, or that's a guitar that comes out. Okay. It just sounds incredible it just yeah. records well i've used it on virtually everything i've done that all the atlantic stuff solo stuff oh, okay it's pretty well the yeah. guitar yeah yeah nice i was going to ask you what, what you take out on the road because you've got these you know precious vintage guitars i mean i think you've probably already answered with the that reissue being your main mentals guitar well, that or was, anything what else yeah, would well, you take out in, well that reissue that's been in the back of many trucks they were road cased yeah, I want to take them out. So they're still pretty well protected. You're trying to get hopefully got good people looking after them. Yeah. Um, the white, the '61 Strat. I've taken that around the world. Okay. Um, yeah, that's been that's been with me a lot of places. Uh, pretty well, I take that. Uh, well, it depends what gig I've got. I've got this other guitar I take out. If I've got a rock gig, I've got a 1959 Les Paul Custom, uh, the Ebony one. That's the rare two pickup model. The two path pickups. Oh, okay. Because they usually, yeah, the three, the three, three yeah. Humbuckers. I've got one of the, yeah, and it's a very early fifty nine. 
Okay. Uh, I can't remember what serial number is, but I remember it's quite an early serial number. And I use that for basically everything else. It's, um, uh, yeah, it, it, I just have it in a normal case. No one knows what's in there. Yeah. And they just think, everyone just thinks it's just, you know, another Liz Paul. But I use that a heck of a lot. I've done probably thousands or so gigs on that one, if not more. Okay. Yep. Um, so that's a guitar I'll take out. You know, you've got to sometimes t- pick one to, t- to take out and use. And I had that refretted. I got the bigger frets put in probably about 20 years ago. I had that refretted. Yeah. Pierce Crocker did a great job on that one. Oh, okay. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. He did that. And um, I've also got a 1954 Strat, one of the first ones ever made. Wow. Tell me, it was on the cover of, tell me about that one. Like it was on the cover of the um, Australian Guitar Magazine, one of the Fender anniversary issues, probably going on quite a few years oh, ago now. I think I remember it. I think yeah. it was the 50th anniversary, maybe. I remember that article. Yeah. 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 Mm. They borrowed the guitar off me for that. Okay. It's, it's, that's a, one of the best sounding Stratocasters I've ever heard. Um, it's pre production. It's got a pencil date on the body and on the neck that says uh, May. 1954. Wow. Uh, Was it it October, the official or the – I know the date's a little sketchy, but May's – that's early, yeah. Yeah, I know it's a couple of uh, months before Dave Gilmore, number one, was made. Okay. Um, But, yeah, it's just a great guitar. I bought it because it just sounded so good. And how did you find that? I got a phone call one day and someone said, mate rang up and said, you need to get here now. <laughs> Basically, you need to see this. Uh, this guy had it. He bought it in Nashville in 1970. Okay. And he basically, basically had it under his bed until when I got it. Okay. And he's, it's a guy who's just decided he wants to sell it. You, but my mate said, you've got, to, you've got to come here. So I managed to do it, you know, negotiate that one. And um, I just said, basically, to him, what's it going to take for me to get this? You know? Mm-hmm. And and then away then when when away and sorted it out. But yeah, that's a really rare one. Um, but it just, it just sounded so good. I just played one chord and went, yeah, wow. And I had that again. Pierce Crocker refretted that mm-hmm. probably about twenty years ago. Okay, yeah, yep. um, I just had to make them playable. This it's is just... this is what I love. You've got these unbelievable guitars, but you you're not afraid to refret them and and take them out and play them. And I think that's what uh, Leo Fender intended. I think so. The thing about a Stratocaster, uh, that's, or a Telecaster for that matter, that's so strong. <laughs> you know, you, yeah, t- you yeah. try and break one. I'm not, a, I would try, but they're, sure. they're made to be played. Some of the Gibsons can be a bit fragile. Um, interesting story here. I've got a, a, a Gibson Super 400, uh, same as Scotty Moore. Okay. You know the Elvis Presley yes. comeback special, the one that's on that, that's Elvis plays. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I've got a 1960, same as that. Mine's late December 1960, I think was the day on it. Okay. And um, it's, you know, all original, uh, one owner before I got it. And uh, th- uh, that was just used in that um, Elvis movie. They're making a, an Elvis movie up in the Gold Coast. Oh, is it the Tom Hanks thing? Yes, yes. Okay. I, I, went, I was up on the Gold I went up there, took, I took the guitar up for the movie. Oh, um, wow. Cool. That was, a, that was in February, I think. I think I just got back just before the curfew. Okay. Okay. Yep. You know, the, before they close the borders, I just yes. said to the production people, I need to get out of here now. Wow. You know? And is it still up there? Uh, no, no. I've got the guitar with oh, me now. Good. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, so that, that I don't know whether they go, they've done the scenes or what, I don't know what they did with it or what. I didn't see everything. Okay. Um, or whether they're going to want it back again. But it's the uh, only one they could find. Because I was hesitant to let it out because it's, you know, it's just a work of art. 
Yes. Oh, beautiful and it's such a, such a good, it's a great guitar. So, um, and you don't want to get one of those, you know, knocked over or damaged. So I thought, well, I'll just, you know, I'll try and help them find another, but we couldn't, couldn't find one like it. So anyway, so I've got that guitar. So it's, and that's a great sounding guitar. It just sounds great. And mm-hmm. Plays great. And, um, and the workmanship on it is incredible. Wow. That's very cool. Mm. Excellent. So things like that, I really enjoy them. They're just like works of art. And you've got to, you know, plus you can play them. Yep, yep, yep. So that's a, that's a, that's a good guitar. That's a very good guitar. Um, there's probably a few other things. I've, I've got a Gibson uh, with a, a six-digit serial number of zeros. It's all zeros, zero, 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 okay. zero, zero. Yeah. Wow. And what, um, what, what type of Gibson? That's a Gibson SG Junior from 1967. All the oh, spec to 67. Okay. Yep. And if you look at the Gibson ledgers, it goes to nine 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 nine, yeah, and then it goes to five zeros and a one. There's no zero zero zero. It's not ah. on the ledgers, but that's exactly when that guitar would have been made. Okay, and you've got six zeros. Yeah, six zeros. And it's, it's it's real. It's um yeah. Wow, and that would From have been when when was well, the six... when was the SG called the Les Paul? Was that sixty five ish or well late six no late sixty one to uh, up until maybe late sixty two. Oh, okay, okay. So this is just an SG. It's just a white junior, and it sounds. I've used that at gigs. It sounds incredible. Great rock guitar. Uh-huh. It's got a great pickup. And it just sounds really good. Wow. That's just a little fun fact there that that it's got one of that serial number which doesn't exist. Yeah. Oh man. Oh. Very cool. <laughs> so I don't know how that got out. That could be a, a worker's guitar. Maybe someone snuck it out or something. Yeah. Okay. I'm but, yeah. I'm knocked out. Like whenever I talk about vintage gear, I'm, I'm knocked out by how much epic stuff was made say by 59 you had everything you had the telly the strat the les yeah. paul you had the the semi hollows that you know the the 335s by then even the um even the explorer and the v which didn't uh you know it took another couple of decades to to make a dent i guess but all yeah. these classic guitars and you think that's just fender and gibson of course um yes um and has anything really radically changed or improved since then i mean there's there's little moves forward, you know, in in performance, I guess, in in, in some aspects. But the, the actual designs just nailed it in that first, you know, ten years of production. I think so. I mean, music changes with technology as well. So um, when Eddie Van Halen came along, you know, that was an interesting era because um, way he put the Gibson sound into a Stratocaster guitar. Mm-hmm. It's kind of yeah. what he made. He, he kind of just, it's very simple, simple idea what he did, but it just really now, he got the right pickup, good sounding, clear pickup, and it, he put that into a Fender guitar and it worked. That was a real big change for everybody. I think, I'm sure other people were doing it as well, but mm-hmm. uh, he was a big one. Sure. But it's, yeah. it's, it's, it is interesting because, yeah, you can't beat the sound of an original late 50s, early 60s Gibson or, or Especially Gibsons, that's their golden golden period, sure, and Fenders, yeah. anything, you know. I've never heard anything sound better than the real ones, what I call the real ones. Yeah, yeah. Um, but basically with Gibson, 1965 would probably be the first cutoff point for that. Then okay. things changed a bit. Fenders, um, Fenders can go into like 1965. You can still find good ones, depending on the model. If it's a base, anything up to 1968, they still sound the same as the early 60s ones. Okay, yep. They're, they what we call the transitional models when they're still using some of the... Yeah, yeah, the, it must be because I can't parts. tell the difference between the sounds of them. Yeah, okay. Uh, and it's when they, when they must run, maybe the bases, they had more parts or something left over. But the bases, I, I can't tell the difference from sound between a 67 and a 
63 or something. Okay. Not yeah. the ones I played. They, they all sound very similar. Yeah, cool. Mm. But with straps that you can, you can tell the difference between a 63 strap and a 67 strap. Right. For example. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah, I think by 67, mm. CBS had well and truly kicked in. and Oh, yeah, yeah, things had changed. Yeah. But, yeah, with bases, I, don't, I think the bases had to have a longer life. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, a little fun fact. Yeah. <laughs> so fascinating, all this stuff. Hey, Martin, I've got to ask you before we wrap up, what's, what's the yes. secret to authentic surf guitar tone? Because if anyone in Australia knows, it's you. Well, the thing is, with authentic, it depends what you call authentic. Uh, most people think America, California, 1962, 63. I think if you want to go for the classic thing, it's when the reverb, Fender Reverb Tank came out, which is early 60s. Uh-huh. So really, it should be a Fender guitar, Fender Reverb Tank, and a Fender amp. Right. That's really what I would have thought. People debate between Jazz Masters and Jaguars and Strats, right. which is the best sounding. I think when well, I did an album called Revenge of the Surf Guitar, which was my first solo album, I actually used a, uh, a Jaguar on that album. Oh, okay. Through a Fender amp. Yeah. Which I'm always a Strat through a Vox amp. That's what I've always done. Yeah. I wanted to sound different to the Atlantic. I thought, well, I'm doing a solo album. I've got to sound a bit different. So I did that. And I just used a, rever- a Fender reverb tank into a, a Viva Verb, a 210 inch Viva Verb, okay. and then yep. a, a, an L series, um, was it Jaguar? And it was a really hard to play because the short scale yes. you couldn't do you, you couldn't really wow out on it you couldn't do any had no sustain right you couldn't you couldn't play up the neck and bend notes and it just wasn't going to do it so i um, that that restricted me to play a certain way which i thought made me sound younger which i thought was a good thing mm-hmm. but if i do that it's going to make me sound younger so that's kind of what i did <laughs> and um, that album still sells it does well so uh, <laughs> Hopefully that was okay, you know. But um, so I'd say authentic, yeah. Fender guitar, Fender, uh, a clean Fender amp, and uh, maybe a, a Fender reverb tank. Gotcha. Yeah. Do you um, um, do you subscribe to the Dick Dale idea of having you know gigantic strings? What what, what do you use? Um, it varies. Uh, I use gauge eleven to forty nine, I think. Okay. Daddario. Yep. Um, I've been using those for years. Generally, I use those. Uh, occasionally, I'll go down to ten to forty-six. If I want a lighter sound, or on my uh, I've got I've got an L-series strat set with flat-wound strings as well. Oh, okay. I can't remember yeah. the gauges on; they're a bit heavier uh, right. on them. I've got some I've got some jazz guitars where I have heavier gauge flat-wound strings, but sure. the strat with the flat-wounds, it's sometimes I you play a melody or you're playing a song and it just sounds a little bit rattly or a little bit thin. Okay. I get the strat with the flat-wounds and it just sits nicely in the mix. Ah, nice. So I use that. I use that occasionally. Um, also, the flat wound strings last for years. Um, I tend to change the top two strings every couple of years. That's right, yes. <laughs> so, um, but that one's just basically it's just the studio. That's a great sounding L series, that, that one. It's, mm-hmm. it's just solid and you put the heavy strings on it, it loves it. But yeah, string wise, I just found 11 to 49 would do everything. Okay. You know, they would do everything. They'd have, they'd have good output, good sound. Um, you can play in tune better than the lighter strings. Um, yeah. And what about it's on, all, on the yeah. Gibsons? Because, uh, yeah, again, a shorter scale, the tension's a little different. Do you stick with the 11s? Or? Um, well, interesting, though, on the Les Paul Custom, which I had refretted with, um, yeah, not a fretless wonder anymore, it's got frets in it. Yeah, I've nice. got 11s, 49s on that. Okay. But on my um, 54 gold top, I think I've got, I've got 10 gauge on that. Okay. 10 to 46, I think, on the other Gibsons. But mostly, 
almost three, three, five. There's 11s. Uh, I'm trying to remember. It depends on what I want to do with it. Sure. Um, each guitar is different too. Each guitar it depends on how high the frets are and, and the shape of the fingerboard and stuff. Okay. Yeah. Um, sometimes if I want a light rhythm sound, I'll use 10 gauge. I actually even uh, put a, nines on a guitar recently because I wanted to get a, a funky sound. I was finding I was just getting a bit heavy handed otherwise. Okay. Yeah. But putting nines on was weird. I think I broke one putting it. On. I think I broke one putting it on. Um, yeah. So yeah, it depends. It all depends what sound you want. Yeah. Okay. Um, you know, and then there's um, then there's the acoustic guitars, which is another thing again. You know, um, playing live, you might want you might want heavier strings to get more volume. But when you record, if the bass strings are too heavy, you'll get too much boom. Right. Yeah. It's so it's a fine line there as well. Yeah, sure, sure. But yeah, that's but, that's interesting though. Yeah, because I think Dick Dale was. I don't, I can't even remember the gauges. I just remember it was crazy thick through. Um, uh, actually, through... I've got a Dick Dale story for you. Uh, I was over in America in 2011. Yeah, I was playing at Huntington Beach. Is playing a little at a tiki bar there, and um, these people come up to me and they said, um, "What are you doing tomorrow?" And I said, "Oh, well, I'm going to head off." Like I was going up the coast or somewhere. They go, well, Dick, Dick Dale wants to meet you. So I said, well, if Dick Dale wants to meet you, I'm, I'm wherever he is. <laughs> so they said, um, they said, um, they got the hotel number, you know, where, where I was staying, the uh, hotel there, and, and and they said, we'll ring you at ten o'clock tomorrow morning. I went, oh yeah, you know, it could be a few drinks talking here. Next morning, quarter to ten, the phone rings. We'll be wow. there in ten minutes. To pick her up. We're, we're going out to his ranch. He wants to meet you. <laughs> So next thing, driving out towards me, I go past Joshua's tree, to, you know, the, the, the de- basically the desert. I thought, geez, I've been kidnapped. What's going on? <laughs> anyway, short, short story, we get there. I meet him and you know, we, we hit it off really well. So I'm sitting in his lounge room and we're just, and he's telling me about all this sort of stuff. And we're talking about, you know, the guitars and, you know, so then, then halfway through a conversation, he just, he just turns to me and goes, what size shoes do you take? I went, what? He goes, what size do you take? I went, oh, I don't know, because I'm thinking Australian sizes are different to American sizes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and with Dick Dale, you, you don't get hesitant. You just got to say yes or no. Da, 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 da. And I went, oh, whatever I said, I come in, hey. He goes, hmm. He t- takes his shoes off and put, he says, put these on. So I'm walking around his lounge room wearing his shoes. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just going, I've got to wake up in a minute. <laughs> 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 And what was the? Was, did he give you the shoes or what was? Oh, kind of. Okay, he said that should be really. He said we're talking about posture and stuff. He said, oh, these are really good. This is what I like to play in when I'm playing. We okay. talk about that stuff. And yeah, yeah he, he started talking about that. He said, "Put these on." So I'm walking around his lounge room wearing his shoes. And I'm going, "This is, you know, it's a bit, bit surreal." Anyway, so we, <laughs> we're talking about all that sort of stuff. You know, the posture and the how you get the power out of the notes. Yeah, yeah. Um, he plays quite hard. Mm-hmm. Um, but he also, I don't know you probably know, he strings his guitar uh, so that the strings are reversed. So he's got a left-handed yeah, guitar, but it yeah. also looks like you can play it right-handed. Mm-hmm. And so his top strings, you know, his low string, instead of being on, on top, it's down the bottom. So he gets a different angle than when he hits the string. His wrist is turned slightly different. Yeah, right. But he's, yeah. um, he's and we were talking, he explained to me the beats that he uses, the rhythms. So it's a real education. And... Um, uh, yeah, so I, I just remember that time. So with with strings, he had they were pretty pretty serious. I mean, they were pretty solid. Uh-huh. And when I joined the Atlantics, Jim Skithis, 
guy who played, you know, Bombora and that, he had on his strap 13 to something. I can't that was so heavy. That's what he was using up, <laughs> up until, you know, uh, you know, 20 years ago. Goodness. On Chunky. a strap that... Oh, you play the thing. You knew you played it. It had lots of volume and, and the notes. Every note was crystal clear. Yeah, right. Yeah. Because like thirteen, I got the, I did write the gauges down, worked them out, and wrote them down one time. But they were like thirteen, and they, they got quite heavy. Um, Stick down might have been a sixty on the E string. I can't remember. Wow. But it was pretty. You know, you, you knew when you were hitting it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it had resonance. So it's interesting. That's how they do it. That also, that's how they learn. They didn't know any different. Sure. Yeah. 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 You know. He didn't know. You can go for the easy way out all the way. He didn't know he different. He was just that's how he was used to playing, and that's all he ever knew. And that's how he built his style around. Yeah, he's worked with the instrument that way. Yeah, yeah, and that's how it worked. And uh, I noticed he didn't have a tremolo arm in there. He had the you know the vibrato arm that goes in the block there. He didn't have one on his guitar. He had his out. He didn't know where it was when I asked him. Like, oh, okay. Yeah, so I think he said, oh, it's got that went years ago, you know. Oh, really? Wow. Because that's a like for a lot of players, including yourself. You know, it's a it's mm. a big deal. The strat. Um, trem system that's that sounds pretty surfy to me as well. I use that a lot when I play a strat, I use it a lot. I don't miss it when I don't play the strat, it's one of those things. Okay, well, Eleanor Rigby, for example, that Eleanor Rigby song that we mentioned before, that's yeah. um, that's less cool custom. Okay, on okay. there, the black, that's the black list cool. Black one, it sounds yeah. a bit, yeah, but it sounds a bit like a strat. Um, what I did find was I, I got an, an original um, 58 basement app, you know, the tweed one, the classic, oh, yeah, whatever. Wow. What I did notice was I bought that years ago, but if I've got, a, say, a 50s Fender or early 60s Fender and a 50s, say, Les Paul, if I just change the lead over on the guitar, I don't have to touch the settings on the app. The settings are still the same. You don't have to adjust the bass or treble. They just both sound the same setting. It works for both of them. Wow. Wow. That's With modern guitars, yeah, modern guitars, you put a telly, you put a Les Paul in, You've got, to, you've got to move the amp around the tones on the amp. But the thing about those guitars is, I noticed with Les Paul with the past pickups and the Fenders from that era of, say, the mid-50s Telecasters or whatever, you, you didn't have to change any settings on the amp. Perfect. Wow, really so that was, interesting. Another, yeah, that's another thing I learned by accident one day. Because mm-hmm. um, I've got a couple of old tellies, and but I've got a 56 that just sounds amazing. Okay. Yeah. And that, yeah, you just don't change. You don't change the settings. It's, it's, so that's yeah. That's a, that's a good. That's an interesting thing there. Yeah. You're saying about Fender kind of got it right by then. Yeah. Or Gibson got it right. Yeah, the golden golden era, right there. Yeah. Yeah, and same with the amps and the guitars. You just plug them in; they just sound good straight away. Yeah. No mucking around. You don't need anything. You know, it's it's it's, it's pretty good. Martin, have you got time to talk about your own guitar with the, the Alan Endwhistle? Um, um, yes. Well, Alan, uh, a few years ago, Alan actually sent me, got in touch with me and said, I love your playing. I love to make you a guitar. So he sent a guitar. He said, what would you like? And I said, Fiesta Red, matching headstock, 3P90 pickups, um, minimal switching. Uh, just want, you know, basically volume and tone. Sure. Yeah. And, um, you know, and the, and the Fender style vibrato system, tremolo system. And, uh, he anyway, he made it, sent it to me. I thought, oh, this is pretty good. And the pickups just sounding great, straight up. So I thought, and then he, he had a lot of people ask me about it. So we got a batch made. Mm-hmm. Uh, they sold out very quickly. Oh, and uh, I'm hoping, I'm trying to get some more, but um, at the moment, it's just hard getting stuff in the country. Yeah, sure. So we're trying to get another run done. And I just wanted to make a couple of little tweaks to it. 
but their guitar and it's also priced you know I, I just basically got it for you know selling it for what it cost me because i just like the idea of um helping people out with guitars and yeah, i just thought great. well these, these guitars are better quality than what some things are for double the price mm-hmm. and they just yeah they sound great i use one and you wouldn't be able to, you know i can i can use like a very expensive stratocaster or something or use that most people aren't going to be able to pick a difference right you know that's very cool i love how it's got the uh it's got the is it like a three-way switch for the three pickups just one each or are you using a five-way uh what we did with the ones that we were on the prototype there's only one switch yeah uh, on the um ones we were selling we put a uh, like a 335 very tone oh, okay. in the top on the top bout part you know oh on, that's on that chicken side. pointer knob yeah 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 it looks like a vox out knob it looks cool too yeah yeah, that's that's what that's like a very tone. So I, I get sort of get one sound. I'm happy with it. I stick to it, and that's yeah. it. I just play, move my hands around to get to vary the sound up. Sure. I realise that most people want all the different sounds, so we put that in there, and they give you like six different. You can get all the different combinations of the sounds. It's very much like the Gibson Very Tone on the yeah, three nice. five five, or, yeah, and um, the other switch is a five way. Oh, so you okay. Can get the, yep. <coughs> the strat thing going. Yeah, cool. You know, so that means that to, so the, the the uh, very tone knob you can just put that in your bypass position or you can use it you've got a choice okay um and then it's got the green pick guard and the block inlays and it's got um binding on the neck yeah it looks awesome looks so cool. yeah it's great guitar and it's so so yeah it's a, 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 a few of my friends straight away just just grab them and it's like oh okay these, these are right are they and they go, oh, these are great <laughs> you know so um I'm trying to get some more, so <laughs> see how see how that goes. And I've got another I've got another design on the go as well. So okay, we'll also with if, Alan, if they, with Alan, yeah, yeah, Alan, yeah, yeah, cool. But Alan's um, I think he's in his second or third lot of uh, quarantine at the moment because he oh, okay he goes it was going between was in Wales I think he was trying to get back to Wales in, in right. the UK but he was um went to Spain so he went to Spain yeah you know, family and stuff there and okay. he, when to get back to England, so it's a couple of different lots of quarantine each yeah, time, 14 yeah. days, you know. Yeah, they're doing it tough over there. Yeah, so um, it, so it's hard for him to be productive. Sure, sure. So hopefully by the end of the year. Okay. Oh, that's that's really cool. Can you divulge any details about the, the second idea you've got? The second idea, well, yeah, basically it's like a, how would you call it, a, a bit like a telly thin line. You know, mm-hmm. with the uh, uh, 1960, 970 telecaster thin lines, with the F-hole thing. A bit like that, but in a, more of a, you know, a, a Stratocaster, um, Jazzmaster sort of way. Okay, nice. And uh, it's going to have three P, I think we decided three P90s on there. Okay, yeah. Um, it works, and that's it's basically a Strat, uh, you know, a, a suit-top Strat, but without being too hot, if you know what I mean. Sure, sure. Sounds great. So that's what like cool idea. Yeah, I think I've done like a, a white cream color with black binding. Um, so they're going to, you know, stick out in the crowd. Yeah, nice. So we'll see. Yeah, that's that's um, that's what I'm hoping for. So let's see if we can get stuff, stuff, um, stuff through on that. But it's just a bit hard at the moment with all the yeah, restrictions. Sure. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Martin, it's been fascinating talking to you about all this stuff. How's What's Thanks, the, Matt. Mate, absolutely. It's been so great. Um, what's the best way for people to keep up to date with all this stuff? So like the, the North Melbourne Surf Club and the new guitars coming in and, and just what you're doing in general. Uh, my website, martincilia.com. Yes. M-A-R-T-I-N-C-I-L-I-A.com. Most stuff will be linked from there. Great. And um, 
whenever I've whenever I interview someone who's got a website that's up to date, I like to mention that as a shout out because not everyone's is, but yours uh, is beautifully looked after and uh, very current. So that's oh, great. good, good. I'm trying, trying to, just been trying to do some work on that recently to keep up with things. Yeah, right. Um, yeah. yeah, and there's actually a North Melbourne uh, Surf Club. There's a band website for that. I think probably live by now. Oh, okay, um, great. That's probably. Uh, probably up by now as well. So uh, All right. I'll, yeah, I'll, try and keep keep current on that. Yeah, excellent. Well, I'll put the links in the show notes uh, for your site and also the North Melbourne. I'll have a dig around for that, and that'd be great. But uh, Martin, thank you so much. You've been super oh, generous with your time and all these amazing stories. <laughs> all right, Matt. Nice chatting. Thanks, Martin. Really appreciate it. And um, yeah, I'll stay in touch. Cheers. All okay. Right. Thanks, See mate. Then. See ya. All right, there you go. My conversation with Martin Chilia. I so enjoyed that. Such a, a gentleman and a, a legend of the guitar community in Australia. Uh, he's put together a fantastic career and a fantastic collection of instruments, and he puts them to super good use. I, I, I know I said this in, in the interview, but I love it that he, he collects and loves his stuff, but he gigs with it and plays it and gets, uh, gets these instruments working rather than locking up them up behind glass cases or something. I think that's really, really cool. So awesome. Now there is there's gonna be a part two to this interview. We continue talking about amps and pedals and you will not be surprised that Martin's collection of that stuff is amazing as well in terms of historic significance and the uh, the gigable utility of it. Very cool. So I think that'll be a bonus episode coming up soon. My thanks to Martin for his time. My thanks to Joe Matera for getting me in touch with Martin. And uh, also my thanks to my sponsors, Fretboard Biology. There are links in the show notes to, uh, to that course. So please check it out. All right, my name is Matt Wakeling. You've been listening to the Guitar Speak podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in for the first show of 2021. I love putting these episodes together and I love it that people all around the world are enjoying them. That's such a such a joy. Anyway, time to go. Thanks for tuning in. I'll catch you next time. Bye now.